moment and look up at the screen. We have been going through our commitments as we established our church. Uh, we came up with a number of, of commitments. A lot of people call these values. So these are not necessarily doctrinal statements, but these are things that we believe strongly. And one of them here, commitment number five, is the commitment to humility. Um, so just follow along as I read. Together with the reformers, Luther and Calvin and great pivotal Christian minds of the last 2,000 years, we believe that all men are dead in sin. We believe that God is holy, that men cannot meet God's standards, nor will they want to unless God initiates a relationship with them. Therefore, it follows that salvation belongs to God, not to men. It is, it's God that saves. It's not that we save ourselves, okay? God reconciles us to himself through his work, not ours. In fact, God has designed salvation to transfer all boasting from self to the cross of Christ. When internalized, these truths provoke lives of growing humility and gratitude to the degree that we grow in humility, God sends grace. Now, just, just hear this. The, the, the whole point here is this. We don't boast about the fact um, that, you know, that look at me, I'm, I'm growing in Christ. We're humble about the fact that God has allowed me and welcomed me into his family and enabled me by virtue of his Holy Spirit and the word of God and those that he's put around me to help me progress in my sanctification to be like Christ. There's a great humility, which means we can recognize that we all struggle with sin, right? We don't have to walk into church like peacocks trying to show off, look, I'm, look how righteous I am today, because you're not. We come in and we're like, you know what, I'm thankful to be with the body of Christ that recognizes that they have struggled with sin this week but we have a great God, we have a Savior, we have the cross to look back to, we have the Savior to hold on to, we have the Holy Spirit consistently ministering to us, and we're comforted by those truths, and as a result, we're not proud, we're humble before God. And humility is a great thing. It's, the church needs more humility, and so we're committed to that here, all right? Well, um, I want to thank all of you for being here this morning, um, and uh, we're just, I'm just going to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, not the book of Titus, but the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And um, uh, this actually marks a very, very important day in the history of Gateway Bible Church. There have been a number of mile marker uh, times in our history. I was just thinking through a number of them here. Our first core group meeting, I believe, was at the Bright Home. When we all gathered together and we said, all right, we, you know, we just believe God is going to do this what does that mean? What does it look like? And I just remember the, the excitement that was there and the ways in which God kind of led that, that core group to, to see things take place. And then I remember the, the first day we met in this building. There may have been about 30 people by that time who, who were like, okay, we want to be a part of this. And we walked in here literally and like, okay, so what are we going to do? How are we going to set this place up? It was all new, but it was, it was exciting. And it was a, a really key day, a mile marker day. Um, our kickoff service later that year, 2011, September, I think it was 18th, um, was this day that we, we set aside to actually officially launch our church. It was a great day just to invite friends that are outside of the church and other church leaders to come and help us. It was a, a mile marker day. Um, then our annual picnics have always been a mile marker day for a lot of different reasons, one of them for the, the good food that we have um, and the fellowship. And just to remind ourselves of God's graciousness to us as a church. Um, 
But really, a, a couple of months ago, when we had the commissioning of our elders, honestly, for me, uh, that was probably the most significant mile marker day for our church, to have that leadership in place after two years of observation, uh, two years of, of our church family being under um, these men and watching and listening and, and, and uh, we just just really thankful for that. When, when people ask, how is Gateway doing? I now land on that day as a mile marker day to say, listen, God has been gracious and we have been able to do this. And I praise the Lord for that. Well, today is another day that begins something that I have been wanting to do for a long time and we've been in the process of doing it. And that is, um, I, it's my desire as pastor, I'm convinced that God says this and, and so I'm doing it. But today we kick off um, the ability of, of giving ministry away to brothers within the body of Christ who are gifted um, at preaching and teaching, who have a little gift or believe that God is calling them to exercise that gift. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that right now, and I want to flesh this out by going through 2 Timothy. And uh, not going to do the whole thing, but I want to highlight some things. So um, turn, if you would, then to 2 Timothy, and I want you to notice verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. Here's Paul the Apostle speaking to Timothy, um, his son in the faith. Um, he says, actually, look at verse 10. Um, um, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, or Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then he says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. This is what Paul was appointed to do. And then verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. And this, this book is all about the ministry of the word in the context of opposition and suffering. And notice what he says now in verse 13 to Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So you see this, you see Paul the Apostle now saying, Timothy, this is something I'm handing over to you. This is something I'm giving to you. And this is 2 Timothy. This is Paul's last letter. And here he's encouraging Timothy to carry on the ministry like Paul had carried on the ministry. Um, and then you notice there in verse 15, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. So even, even as Paul ministered the word, there was opposition that was growing. Then we go to chapter 2. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, really is a, a key text. And we're going to land there in, in, in verse 2. Um, but I want you to notice, first of all, he says, You then... Talking about Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So be strengthened in his grace. Secondly, he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to, to teach others also. And then he goes from verse 3 to verse 7, talking about the, the, the suffering that he will endure as a good soldier. And so there's these three things that he tells Timothy I want you to be aware of and I want you to do. Now, he continues on in verse 8. Notice what it says there. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering. So he's saying, remember the gospel. Remember the truth of the gospel that I have been preaching and preaching and preaching that you've heard me preach over and over again. Verse 14, he says, remind them. Well, who's the them? 
the people under your care, the sheep that you're ministering to, the church, uh, the people that make up the church there in Ephesus. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does, not, does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best, he says, to present your, yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling what? The word of truth. Now you see this, this pattern here that Paul is saying. Here, I was, I was appointed to be a preacher, to be a, an apostle, to be a teacher. And he calls uh, to Timothy his, his attention in verse 14 of chapter 1, guard the good deposit. What's that good deposit? It's the gospel. It's this responsibility to minister the word. And so he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, remind them of these things. And, and verse 15, rightly handling the word of truth. Now let's continue by turning to chapter 3. In chapter 3, he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. And he gives a whole list describing this time of difficulty. And then he says in verse 10, and you, however, again, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Verse 14, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned. And what he's talking about here is he just didn't just learn it from Paul. He also learned it from his family. Okay? It says in verse 15, How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then this very well-known passage of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so, again, he's reinforcing the ministry of the word, the importance of the word, the effect of the word, and how that word is to go out, how that word is to be proclaimed, and the responsibility that Timothy has in handling that word. And then, chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure what? Sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to what? The truth and wander off into myths. So Paul is just pressing home to Timothy. I'm I'm handing over this ministry of the word to you. Here I am. My time is coming to an end, and I'm handing this over to you. Take it seriously. The word of God, the sound doctrine, the gospel is so critically important, and you have a responsibility with it. So let's just summarize what we just looked at briefly here. Paul is calling Timothy to continue to minister the word of God in the context of suffering and opposition, guarding the deposit, delegating the deposit, remembering the deposit, reminding others about that deposit, following and continuing in the deposit, and preaching the deposit. So six things he mentions here. And the deposit being the gospel, and the deposit being the preaching of that gospel. So now I want us to go back to chapter 2. And let's look then at this particular verse of Scripture, and it's up there on the screen Chapter 2, verse 2. 
the Apostle Paul says to, to Timothy, here's what I want you to do. In the context of this opposition, in the context of the suffering, in, the, in the, the context of what I am telling you to do, here's something more specific I want you to do that has to do with training up other men for the ministry. And he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, I want you to notice there are four generations being talked about here. There's the Apostle Paul, who is teaching Timothy in the context of many witnesses. Well, who are those many witnesses? What's that talking about? Well, Timothy went with Paul on missionary journeys. He was there when Paul taught in various cities. And so the various places where Paul went are the places that would testify that what Paul is saying to Timothy is the same thing that Paul said in those cities. In other words, wherever he went, he preached the same gospel. Wherever he went, he took the same truth of God's word and proclaimed it and taught it and pressed it home and encouraged people with it. This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul now is saying, I'm entrusting to you. But then he's saying, I'm entrusting it to you, but now I want you to entrust that also to faithful men. And then those faithful men are to be entrusting that to others also. Now, the, the first priority application of this, of course, is directed to those who are pastors or teachers in the context of the church. But there is, I want to say, a secondary application, that is, Everyone who is a believer has been entrusted with the gospel, has been entrusted with the word of God. And you have a responsibility to carry out the ministry of the word of God, whether that be with your marriage, whether that be in your home, whether that be you know, with, with people that may be part of your home group or other people that are in the church, and even in an evangelistic way. You have an opportunity and a responsibility to carry on this, this movement of the word of God through the years. What we actually have here is this. A, a true apostolic succession that is pressed home here by Paul by saying it's the ministry of the Word of God that must be passed down through the years, through the ages. And friends, the reason that you and I are sitting here today is because God has seen fit that that would take place through the years. And you and I are the recipients of the message of the truth of God's Word because people have taken this passage seriously. Now, Let's think about what this looks like. The idea here is, is passing the baton. Anyone here ever run a relay before? I mean, actually run a relay where you had the baton and you had to pass it? I used to do that when I was in high school, okay? And one of the things that you have to understand when you are running a, a relay race is that you must run as a team. It's a team sport. It's not an individual sport. You may be the fastest person. But you're not going to be running unless you have what? The baton. It has to be passed to you. It's a team sport. Secondly, to run that relay, you must exchange the baton in the right way. I mean, you don't just run around the track and say, hey, Joe, you know, hope that he's going to catch it and he's going to take off. No, there are rules and regulations that say, between what markers you can pass the baton, and then technique-wise, there's a right way of doing it. You always come up like this so the person can grab it and they can run with it. That's at least how I was taught it. There's a right way to do it. And then the third thing is this. You must keep running. What good is it if you have the baton, you say, eh, I'm going to stop. 
The point is to finish the race. And what you have in this passage is really the passing of the baton of the, this guarded gospel, this truth, these doctrinal truths, this sound doctrine that is carried on through the ages through faithful men. So let's just take a moment to unpack this little verse, and there's three things I want us to notice. First of all, uh, what we must entrust. We must entrust the gospel. Now, this, this gospel um, is, of course, the, the teaching that Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he died on the cross as our substitute, paid the penalty for our sin. Not only did he die, um, but he was buried, and three days later, he rose from the tomb victoriously uh, with, with this, this, this conquering of death, and he then ultimately ascended up to heaven. Okay? That's the story of the gospel. All right? Now, that gospel then was preached everywhere that Paul went. So it wasn't like one gospel for the people in Greece and one gospel for the people in Jerusalem. It was the same gospel where he went. Now, those contexts had some difficulties in their reception of the gospel. And honestly, guys, here in California, people respond to the gospel differently than they do in the Midwest. There are different issues. There are different kind of cultural norms. But the gospel stays the same. And we have to recognize how that gospel that interacts with those different cultures. Now, um, they could confirm um, what, as, the, as he went to those different places, these witnesses then could confirm that what Timothy heard was the gospel. And there's different expressions used here. I've mentioned them, but there's this idea of sound doctrine, this pattern of sound words, this good deposit, the scriptures, the word, the message. These are all uh, words and phrases that are used in this little letter to describe this deposit, what it is. It's the gospel, and it's the doctrinal teaching that flows out of the gospel. So when we talk about, in our mission statement, that we, are, we believe that we exist to be a, a, a community of believers that are um, actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're saying in the, in the, in the gospel, sorry, in the word is the gospel, but the word is the fleshing out of the gospel. So we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the actual word of God, which then has weaving all throughout it the story and the truth of the gospel. So this is what Paul is saying to, to Timothy. I want you to guard this, and I want you to delegate this. Okay, notice this is what he is calling him to do. Delegate it to faithful men. So entrust to faithful men. You entrust something to someone, what are you saying? Take care of it, right? You have an old bomber car and someone says, can I borrow it? You're like, yeah, sure, here are the keys, you know. You have a nice Mustang, brand new. Here, take my keys. You're entrusting your baby to that person. Don't come back with a scratch, all right? And the person's saying, I don't even know if I want to take it, all right? Now, to entrust means you are handing over and you're leaving it in their care. But you're leaving it in their care with full understanding and full assurance that they are going to care for it properly. So it's not just handing over the baton, but it's handing over the baton to someone who knows it, understands it, knows what they're supposed to do with it. Okay? And so here he's saying, entrust to faithful men. 
And you probably heard this before, but you know, we're talking about we want to raise up fat pastors, okay? You already have one, we need a few more, okay? And what does it mean to be a fat pastor? It means to be faithful, first of all. That means that they're loyal, that they're believers, that they're reliable. And so Paul invested in many men. Even in this little letter, we find a number of men that Paul ministered uh, to and invested in, but some turned away. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Vigilus and Hermogenes. Fortunately, those names did not catch through the years, um, and hopefully you won't choose those if you're ever having a child. But anyway, um, there's those guys. Then no, the, 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 Probably the one that really strikes us the most is chapter 4 and uh, verse 10. He says in verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon, speaking to Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. But then you have Crescens, he's gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke, Mark, and Tychicus, of course, the very, very key servant of, of uh, Paul. So you have these people that Paul has invested in, but not all of the people he's invested in have proved to be faithful. You don't always know that right away. Okay, but we're looking for faithful men. So faithful, available, men who are willing to make this a priority, men who desire to see this ministry happening in their life, that believe that, that God has, has put this on their heart so they can be used by God to minister the word of God. They want to see the ongoing of, uh, of this teaching ministry as a priority, and so they cut out other things so they can do the necessary things to, to see that the ministry of the Word of God is a priority in their lives. And then teachable. And no one's able to teach well unless he is also teachable. When we teach our, our, our Cornerstone class, we all say the best counselor is a good what? Counselee. The best teacher, the best person to handle the Word of God is willing to be affected by the Word of God. It's going to be taught by the Word of God and other people that are giving instruction in the Word of God. So he's saying here, entrust to faithful men. And then the third thing is this, entrust with a view to multiplication. In other words, I'm entrusting to faithful men, and that could be a number of those men, and those other men now are then to carry on this ministry to other people. And this is supposed to continue and to continue and to continue. So here we are, Gateway Bible Church. All right, we started the church. I was the teaching pastor, and I'm thrilled about that. We've gone to Bolivia with the purpose of training pastors, and the goal there is to help them understand how to handle the Word of God. We've gone to a number of Simeon Trust conferences with some of the men to help them handle the Word of God. Last year and the year before that, um, I, I honestly, we probably had about seven guys from our little church that were at this conference of about 35 um, pastors and, and elders and stuff from different churches. And it's just like, wow, these guys are eager. They're wanting to learn. This year, we only had two. So I oh, really went downhill. No, it didn't go downhill at all because we started our own Simeon Trust um, project with our own men who wanted to learn and to grow in this discipline and this responsibility of handling the Word of God. And so what we have going on today 
is the beginning then of this, this public part of the work that has been done with these men. And so it's been, boy, it's been a, a number of months now since I got together with these men and said, all right, you know, we're going to work on this project together. It was last year sometime. Um, actually, it was early last year sometime. And we began to work through uh, these principles together. And we said, all right, we are going to work through Titus together. And the goal is not for me to preach Titus at all. The goal is for you, five men, to walk our church family through this little letter, Titus. But we studied it together. We studied it and tried to determine where are the, where are the natural thoughts and breaks. What is, what is Paul saying to Titus here? What is the theme of this book? And then we divided it into various sections. And then they didn't know what, but I assigned different guys, different passages, different sections. And so we worked through a lot of that stuff together. And then they have been working individually on what would they do and how would they do it as far as preaching is concerned. And today you'll get the first. Next week you have J.D. and Johnny who are going to be coming to you opening up the book of Titus. Now, friends, I'm really excited about this. Why? Because this church is not about Rod Phillips. This church is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ has given us this gospel. And he's given us this ministry. And my role and function is to help equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But one of the ways we do that is we hand off that ministry to faithful men who can do the same thing in the context of the church. And so we want to see men and ultimately women developing in their role of teaching the Word of God in the right context. So I look back on my life and I ask myself the question, whom did God place in my life that passed the baton of gospel ministry to me. And I thought of a few characters. Um, my pastor, Dr. Paul Vanneman, still had a huge impact on my life. He's now with the Lord. Um, but um, he had a different preaching style, com completely different than mine. I mean, he was an in-your-face, um, sweating, hanky kind of a preacher, okay? Which was part of the, part of the generation. I mean, we used, we used to joke. We, we, we would have this, as young people, we would have this kind of a, imaginary measuring stick because if it was a really good sermon his heel was higher than the pulpit you could measure the effect of the sermon by how high his heel was when he was preaching okay now a different style of ministry together and if you ever see me go that route I'm sorry but that's not usually how I would preach right had a huge impact on me and, and the bottom line of what he said was listen love the Lord Jesus Christ in all that you do as a pastor love the Lord then his son, Todd Vanneman, was my youth pastor, had a huge impact on me, uh, shaped me through that youth ministry. I actually went back and served under him for five years. Um, and then a, a man by the name of Norris Hawkins. Norris Hawkins was um, a lay pastor. He worked at a grocery store during the week, and he pastored this little church in Anderson, South Carolina, that met in a single wide trailer. You think we have it bad, right? Single wide trailer, but... He preached with a shepherd's heart. He cared for his people. And he was, he, I learned hospital visitation from him. I learned how to, how to be in people's homes from him. A lot of things I learned from him. He had a huge impact. And then Bill Cruson, I was under for about a year while I was in, in seminary and just really taught me to be careful in handling the word of God. Now, there's just a few that come to mind. But I am thankful for the effect of these men on my life. Okay? And then as I, as I look ahead, I say, Lord, how are you using me then to affect other men for the glory of God 
And so I, I see this, what we're doing here today, what we're, what we're beginning here today, as totally, incredibly appropriate for our church. I have no qualms about setting aside my time up here for the betterment of this church and for the betterment of the kingdom of God because other people are developing their gifts under care, under oversight, and uh, we want to see that multiplied. So I'm really thankful. So, um, so here's what we're doing. We're going to, uh, today and next week, um, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1 in June. We're going to have two weeks. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Um, and then sometime in the fall, we're going to hopefully finish up with Titus chapter 3. So there's, there's four things I want you to do. This is your role in this whole thing, okay? Four things. You want to jot them down. This is the most important thing you're going to hear from me this morning, okay? Number one, support these men. Imagine if I asked you to get up here and preach. What would you want? Support, all right? Now, some of these guys, they've, this is, they've never done it before. They're going to get up, maybe, possibly, and kind of, heba wobe hebo baba, right? Which translated means I'm really terrified and it's not coming out properly, okay? Support them. Pray for these men. Okay? The third one's really important. They are ministering the word, so seek to learn from these men. Okay? Now, God has blessed us with some quality men. And I'm sure that we are going to be encouraged by this. But I want you to be careful that you're not sitting back kind of like, oh, let's see how they do. Say, Lord, this person's opening up the word, and I want you to impact me through what they're doing. I remember the first message I ever preached. It was on Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes. And my application was, God needs to multiply us. What a total misuse of God's word. But the people sat there, and they smiled, and they listened, and the little old ladies came up afterwards and said, good job, Rod, that was really good. You really spoke to my heart. But I totally missed the point of the passage. But if someone had come up to me that day and just been critical, it may have crushed me. So I just, I just want you to be mindful that God, even through, through some struggle and difficulty, may still be teaching you through that message, okay? Number four, be thankful for these men. Now hear this. These men are not the elite of the church. These men are taking on a challenge to do something that they are actually pretty terrified about, but are trusting God to give them strength for. Okay? And we want to see this take place, and we want to see it take place for the glory of God, for the, the health of Gateway, and for the purpose of building the kingdom for, for his glory. So, let's have a word of prayer. Um, Matt and I are going to exchange microphones. I'm going to abandon him by going somewhere else, and... Um, and then we have someone that's going to come and read scripture for us in just a minute. Um, let's take a moment to pray and to commit this to God, okay? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We are in awe of who you are and the daunting task, Lord, it is to open up your word and to proclaim it accurately, carefully, faithfully, 
with a mind to reach different people who are coming with different struggles through the week, but Lord, to do it for your glory. Would you strengthen Matt in particular today as he begins opening up the book of Titus for us? Would you speak mightily through him? Would your people here be humble before you, be teachable, so that we can be strengthened, Lord, to do what you're calling us to do from this wonderful, incredible book. And we ask now for your strength and your power and your wisdom to be on Matt. Guide him. Give him freedom. Help him, Lord, to, to simply find joy in this incredible responsibility that you've given him. We ask in your precious name. Amen. All right. I would ask now that Tracy come, and she is going to read Titus chapter 1. I'd invite you all to stand, and um, it is not going to be on the screen, so you are going to need your Bibles, all right? Titus chapter 1, and give them a few minutes to get ready there, a few seconds, okay? Thank you. Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with goodness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised from promise before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might be put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm, firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain that they ought not to teach. One of Cretan, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him in their works. 
They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated. All right, we'll just do announcements. Ms. on okay? We'll start with announcements. Um, well, good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be here and uh, have Rod introduce that. I think he's gone by now, so I can really say whatever I want. Um, <coughs> just kidding. Um, this morning, um, we're going to go over this and make sure I have this right. Um, the letter of Paul to Titus. In 2012, uh, Paul Tripp, I don't know if anybody reads Paul Tripp, but he wrote this book that I read not too many months ago called Dangerous Calling. It's called Dangerous Calling, Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral Ministry. And he wrote this book for potential pastors, people that may want to read this and really kind of know what they're going to get into. It's basically a longer version of the book of Titus. Right? And he encourages pastors in this one section of the book, which I just love, he encourages pastors and congregations to consider answering these following questions. Right? He's got this long list of questions. When you're candidating for a church, you want your congregation to ask these questions. And this is what he says. What are the deep desires that fuel and shape the way you do ministry? Right? Are you open to confrontation, critique, and encouragement of others? Are you warm and hospitable, a shepherd and champion to those who are suffering? What character qualities would your wife and children use to describe you? Let's not go there. Or is your heart broken and is your conscience regularly grieved as you look at yourself in the mirror of your word? Wow. Those would be great if when we call another pastor in the future, we ask them those questions. But similarly to Paul Tripp, the Apostle Paul tells Titus, this is what is going to be required of leadership in the local church in Crete. So this short epistle that we're going to go through is written by Paul to his protege Titus, very similarly to Timothy. But, you know, I, I like time. I, I like, so when you think about this, so this book was written somewhere around 62, 64 AD, right? And uh, Paul was converted somewhere between 33 and 34 AD. Right? And so he's been preaching the gospel and planting churches for 30 years. And sometimes I just lose sort of the scope of time of what Paul's been through. So Paul writes this epistle to Titus during some, you know, a fourth missionary journey that's really not recorded in the book of Acts. So, so we come to this letter from Paul to Titus. And Paul planted these churches on the island of Crete. And after establishing these churches, he wanted to make sure that they were properly shepherded. So he's done this before. If you could turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. You can see this is a, this is a pattern of Paul. Acts 14, verse 21. He says this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there's a pattern here of what Paul does to set up a church. So Paul left Titus in Crete and leaves him there to shepherd the church. 
He trusts this guy. The epistle is, is most likely a response. So Titus is having some struggles, and he writes, he writes Paul a letter. And then the book of Titus is a response from Paul to Titus. And he writes this letter to encourage him. And this is what he says, preach the gospel. Continue to preach the gospel, just like what Rod talked about in Timothy. And he says this, the preaching of the gospel should result in a grace-based godliness in the life of the church, church is, in Crete. He says that's the theme that kind of runs throughout the book. It says this grace-based godliness in the life of the church. And so when you guys hear us preach this week and next week and sometime later in, in June and then in the fall, this is the common theme, this grace-based godliness in the life of the church. Now, this church in Crete hasn't been a church for very long, but there exists false teachers in the church. And in this epistle, there, there's no sort of theological correction. So Paul has this sort of, he's got some confidence in the members there. He knows they're going to get on the right track, but what he is really doing is encouraging Titus. We're not specifically told what they believe necessarily, but uh, we are given sort of a vague sense, right? So if you, um, he says this, Paul wants Titus, this is verse 5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So that's his job. So he says, go, appoint elders, and he's going to give some qualifications for what elders and what he describes later on as what proper Christian living looks like if you are a follower of Christ. So these false teachers, you know, what do we know about them from, from the book? It's interesting, in the book of Timothy, he refers to these Jewish myths. He says, so they come out of some form, some Jewish element in the church at the time. It could be um, myths, but he says in verse 10, he says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So that's some Jewish element, and they're interested in Jewish myths. In verse 15, or 14, he says this, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So Paul's really, his, his big concern is not so much the theological issue, because he trusts the people there, but his concern is what happens when you actually believe something that's false. Right? His concern is the byproduct of these beliefs. Just like you and me, right? My behaviors, my feelings, they are dictated by my beliefs, how I view Scripture. And so it is with the Cretans in the church at Crete, their behaviors are a result of their beliefs. So Paul sort of expects the complete gospel, when preached, to result in a real godliness in everyday life. So that's his message to Titus. Preach the gospel. Continue to preach the gospel. The gospel of grace. So this week and next week, we're going to go through chapter 1, and then, as Rod mentioned, in June, and then sometime in the fall, we'll be done with the book. But I encourage you, um, and, you know, Rod um, said, you know, I encourage you to read the book. You know, it doesn't take very long, but uh, I, th I think what you'll see, and what I've seen, is, is like a really a rich letter from a guy who loves Titus, right? He just loves him, I and mean, he calls him a, a true child, right? And he's a family member in the faith. And so he writes this to him, and, and we, we get a chance to just sort of get a glimpse into his world. So now let's sort of jump into this, this text. We're going to just go through one through four here this morning. 
those of you know that I have traveled a good bit in my uh, life and, uh, and while working at Chevron. And um, so every place that I go, there's a different way to greet one another, right? And uh, if you've ever been to Singapore, and uh, there's a lot of Singaporean Chinese there, um, and you can greet someone very informally. I don't know this for sure because I don't know the words that go along with it, but um, you know, you say hi, they say hi, and you say how you're doing. And they use an idiom that is literally translated horse, horse, tiger, tiger. Now, I don't normally greet someone with horse, horse, tiger, tiger, but if I'm feeling just okay, I may greet you with that next time. So <clears throat> now, uh, not too long ago, maybe a year ago, my friend from uh, work came here to church, and he's from South Africa. And they sort of use something that's kind of a mashup, right? So instead of saying, how are you doing, they say, how's it? Right? So that's really compact, right? And you're supposed to respond in Dutch, lekka, which means good. <clears throat> now, I grew up um, in Southern California, but I've also been to Texas many times. I was there this week. Anybody here from College Station? I don't think anybody's here from College Station has ever been to Texas A&M. They don't say hello at Texas A&M. This is another country. <clears throat> they say, howdy. And you're supposed to respond back, howdy. It's a Texas A&M thing. Or in my case, if you grew up in Southern California, you don't say anything. You just give them the head nod. <laughs> right? You don't say anything. So wh whatever the greeting, it's supposed to like tell you, give you some kind of indicator of what you should, you know, should be coming. Right? Unless you're from Southern California. Um, but so Paul's introductions are, are not sort of these casual greetings that we use at Gateway, right? Or in your workplace or anything like that. Our, our passage this morning is not just about a salutation. Paul doesn't simply say, dear Titus, and then launch into what he wants to say, right? It, it's not something to be read casually. So that's sort of our chance here is, is, you know, why would we preach a whole message on four verses of an introduction? So Paul sort of, his introduction and his greeting to Titus is sort of pregnant with meaning. And it's supposed to give us an indicator of what's to come for the rest of the book, right? If you read any of Paul, he actually starts off and he's going to usually tell you what he's going to tell you and then he's going to explain it for the rest of the book. So this section is meant to be Paul, the apostle, right? Sort of transferring sort of his apostleship to Titus, right? The disciple... And he wants him to pay attention to what he has to say. So we should listen too. So Paul has started something, and he's leaving it in the hands of Titus. Right? And he says, if you have taken over for someone, you know, what do you want done for you? And he's going to tell him what that is. Right? And Paul knows there's going to be some tough sledding ahead. Right? This job is not going to be easy. You're young. Don't forget, Paul has been doing this for 30 years. Right? He's been through all of these things. Sometimes we just forget the span of time. Sometimes I don't recognize that when Paul got converted and how many years later it was he started teaching and all of these things, right? We're just very sort of short because we don't grasp that. So the question for us and for Titus is how are you going to receive it? Now, how am I going to pay attention to what he has to say? You're going to pay very close attention to whatever is told to you, right? Knowing that this is Paul's departing instructions to Titus. You're, you're going to look for things to latch on to. So we'll find some things in here. 
um, to remember, and things, at least for Titus, I have to anchor my ministry to what I'm hearing, Paul says. Right? So whatever he says, if it's grace-based godliness in the life of the church, okay, don't forget. Right? That's the gospel message. It's a gospel of grace. So Paul knows about Titus, and he knows him, and he says, hey, look, I trust you. I trust you to appoint elders. That's a big task. Right? And Titus is not unfamiliar, so we see Titus in other places in Scripture. We saw him, at the, him mentioned at the end of 2 Timothy, right? And he's, he's definitely, he's actually familiar with what Paul has gone through. He's actually mentioned in, in 2 Corinthians. And Paul knows, knows that Titus is going to need um, Paul's authority to do what he has to do, right? To accomplish what he's been asked to do. So, so Paul is reinforcing Titus' need to preach the gospel. So I have four points, which every good sermon should have three, so I've stuck in another one. <clears throat> and um, the first one is, is grace. And what we're going to see in, in verse 1 is this great, this great and merciful grace. So Paul, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we'll stop, stop right there for just a second. And I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 26. So this is about Paul, right? So this is um, the book of Acts. So Paul was a passionate guy, right? Full of zeal in his persecution of Christians, right? This guy was, um, l listen to him talk about himself in verse 9, Acts 26. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving the authority from the chief priests, but when, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Man, he, got, he, that's, he, thought, he thought he was doing the right thing. He's righteous. Right? In his own eyes, that's what his job was, to actually persecute Christians. And so Paul acknowledges this. This is a very sort of sh short sentence. Paul, and everything that came with it, of who he identified himself as. And then he calls himself a servant of God. And many of you have probably read that book by John MacArthur called Slave. This is that word in Greek, doulos. Right? He calls himself a slave, a servant of God. It's not anything that he necessarily accomplished on his own, but something that the sovereign God worked in him. If Christ had not arrested him on the road to Damascus, as we see in Acts 26, he would probably have still been doing this up until the point of his death. So Paul identifies first as a slave of God, and all that means for someone to be under a master. Everything you can think about what a slave is, not necessarily a colonial slave here in America, but it's just he, he was under, under Christ. And he knows that he is no longer in his, on his own. You don't have to turn there. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, right? So Paul actually says, in referring to actually, he's talking about sexual immorality, but he says, he says, you are not your own. 
end of verse 19. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So he understands that, hey, look, I am not my own. And so he's telling the Corinthian church the same thing. And then he also calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a, a chosen messenger. So what does a messenger do? You know, oftentimes I think of um, some, you know, medieval movies where a messenger will go up instead of this, this sort of the, not a Twitter version, but a very sort of short version of Facebook, and they, they just herald the news. They stand up in front of a town crier, and they just give the message of the king, right? And that's what Paul is doing. He said, I'm a messenger, a, messen a, a chosen messenger of Jesus. So I'm told, I'm told what to say, and I'm going to say that. He is there not sort of adding his own spin, you know, on what he should be saying. He's just telling what the gospel is. So Paul tells Titus in this first sentence that God doesn't limit his grace to the, what I call the semi-despicable, right? So his grace is so great that even for the worst of sinners like Paul and like you and me, right, you may not be convinced this morning that you, you sort of, you have hung on to what I call your self-indulgent sin too long, right? So you may think, you know what, I'm a pretty good person, or that maybe even you don't even have any sin at all. But you think about it, Paul was convinced of those same things. He was convinced he was right in persecuting Christians. Right? He felt the same way. Yet not many years later, there he is, a, a dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. He saw things very differently when he encountered Christ. Right? Humbled to admit what his first Timothy 1.15 says. He's a, he's a sinner and of the utmost. The chief of sinners, some translations call it. God's grace is great enough for Paul and it's great enough for us too. And then we look at the second half of that verse. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So he's saying for the, for the sake of the faith, for evangelizing the chosen of God. And I'm not going to dig deep into election, because Rod had talked about that a couple weeks ago, but if you look at 2 Timothy, which is just the, the book right before Titus, 2 Timothy 2.10, I know Rod already talked a little bit about 2 Timothy 2, but look at what he says, he says in verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul recognizes he is the herald of the gospel, for those God has elected to save. Right, he's doing his job. And the more you read Paul, the more you realize that he is under some compulsion. And later on in the verse, he's under some command by God to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Right? <clears throat> and that's his purpose. That's his why statement about why he's actually an apostle. Right? He is actually commanded to preach for those who believe who are gods, he's commanded to preach the gospel. So then he says, back in Titus, he says, it's, it's for the faith, the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it's for their edification that he's doing this, the knowledge of the gospel, of saving faith. This, this saving faith makes itself, Paul says, it makes itself known in godliness, right? You cannot have real knowledge of the truth without the accompanying godliness, right? If, if, if the knowledge of the truth does not impact the way you live and breathe 
but I just question whether it's the knowledge of the truth. It's this knowledge that establishes the relationship, this, this faith that develops this godliness. The godliness follows. You notice that it actually doesn't precede it, the knowledge of the truth, it follows godliness. So I, I, um, you, you may uh, think to yourself, or, or sometimes when you lie in bed uh, at night before falling asleep, um, especially if you, you're around, you know, a lot of times we have a lot of people that just surround themselves with all Christians. And I know they're all sort of living the Christian life. And so sometimes you may be tempted to think, you know what? God's standards are impossible. I cannot keep up this facade, right? Or I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to be godly, and, it, and it's, just, it's just not working. I'm failing. And, and maybe you've given up altogether and now sort of live by your own sort of modified set of rules about what you think God accepts. Well, here, here's the good news from this, just this one verse. God doesn't save you based upon your ability to follow the rules, but gives free and unmerited favor by his mercy. Right? There's some freedom in that. We rest not on what we've done, but what, on, on what Christ has done on our behalf through his death on the cross and his resurrection. It's, it's not my own strength. And Paul acknowledges that in the first verse. He recognizes who he is, and he says, you know what, this grace is great and merciful. It's beyond great and beyond merciful, but that's the best we can describe it as. So <clears throat> the second verse is, is, is grace that's promised for eternity. Let's look at verse 2 and verse 3. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with, his, with, his, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So he says this. In verse 1, he talks about faith and knowledge, right? And faith and knowledge rest on eternal hope. If there is no eternal life, if there is nothing after you and I die, and, and Jesus did not rise from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, we are a people to be most pitied, right? And my friend always says, well, let's just split up the donuts and go home, right? So let, let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is actually talking to the Corinthian church here, and the Corinthian church believed that actually Jesus rose from the dead, but not the rest of the believers. So he's saying, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And this is what his point is. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, right? We are all of people most to be pitied. I'm sure um, that the world thinks that. But see, he also says God never lies as opposed to the Cretans in verse 12. 
I'm always fascinated to, to see how scripture is actually brought into the world. And if anybody followed the story of this gentleman, Brian Stowe, who was beat up at Dodger Stadium, uh, I don't know whether it was his wife or his mother-in-law, you know what she called the gentleman who beat him up? You cretins! There was in the cover of the Chronicle. These guys were cretins, right? So somehow scripture is plowed through our culture, right? So what did God promise, right? God promised before the ages began that there would be eternal life. Grace began in eternity past, and it extends into eternity future, right? The supply of grace is is for eternity. There is an inexhaustible supply. It's not like anything else, right? And then he says, I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul was under a divine call. Paul was not a self-made man. He's not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type of guy. Paul was commanded to preach the gospel of grace to Gentiles. Look, look just real quick to Acts 20. We'll go back to Acts Acts 20, verse 24. So Paul says, I don't account my life of any value as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, who actually received it from Jesus, is now transferring it to Titus. And you get this picture of Paul that he is actually... He's just actually doing what he's commanded to do, right? If we could all live that way, live for Christ, as if we are commanded to actually live for Christ. And just in terms of this inexhaustible supply of grace that's promised for eternity, you, you could be thinking at some point in time, and maybe not now, but you may be tempted to think in a few years, you know what, I, I may burn out at some point in time. You know, I've done this Christian life before and I've burnt out. And I know I've been participating at Gateway, but at some point in time, there is going to be an end. And, uh, or or maybe, um, maybe you have a child or a family member. Um, and uh, this is certainly important. And, and this child is walking with the Lord, but you don't know if God can actually, you don't know if you can praise God for your child's salvation or if one day, because you've heard it so many different ways, this child of yours will come home and tell you they think this whole Christian thing is for weak people. Or maybe it's just for people who really need a bunch of nice people to socialize with and help them move on Saturdays. Right? And I don't know about you, but I think about that. Right? Well, let, let me encourage you this morning with what Paul says, God never lies. And what has been accomplished on the cross and when Jesus rose from the grave, what he promised in his word will come to pass. No matter what I think or what I feel, right, he is still on the throne, no matter what my circumstances are, right? His grace is forever, and, is, and is, he is sovereign, right? If I can remind myself of anything. Now, num point number three is about grace and being brought into the family. If you look, verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
So, um, Paul actually writes his opening to this young man, Titus. And he's got 30 years, at least, on this young man, Titus. And if you could just turn in, in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, the first time he actually mentions something to Timothy, and he greets Timothy. This is shockingly similar, right? This is Paul, in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, which is what we just talked about, right? To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Paul was a Jew, and Titus is a Gentile, and they don't mix. But actually, with Christ, they actually come into the family of God together. We just think about this. Think about the people that are sitting around you. We are people that normally would not mix, right, out in the world, right? But the uniqueness, the common faith, right, that actually Paul and Titus have together, they are both absolutely dependent on the finished work of the cross for salvation. And, and so are we. And, and Paul writes, he says, he says if, we, if we look back, from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now he mentions the same thing, our Savior, to Timothy. It's not just my Savior or your Savior, Titus. It's our Savior, right? It's, it's, it's ours. It's possessive. What does he say? He says this is a common faith. It's sharing in the common, the common salvation. And this is what unites us as all believers in the universal body of Christ, this common salvation that we have received by grace, meaning you did absolutely nothing to earn it. Zero. Or to keep it, for that matter. He says to Titus, as a follower of Christ, you are under compulsion. Right? He commands him. You are under compulsion to serve Christ in the church. So go, be my messenger. Preach the gospel of grace. Preach it to yourself and to the church, and that will result in godliness. So Paul also uses grace and peace in that. And sometimes I think, sometimes we just kind of miss the meaning. And Oh yeah, grace and peace, yeah, sure. And, um, <clears throat> but just so you understand that what he's talking about, he's talking about grace is what's bringing us salvation and peace is what's coming from the salvation. Right, so they are linked. I know just recently Rod talked about this grace and this peace together. And he says, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, he, he mentions actually this in verse 3 where he talks about God our Savior. So he's mentioned that God is our Savior and Christ Jesus is our Savior. I find it fascinating that in, a, in a, just a plain reading of Scripture, there are some um, cults that miss the Trinity, right? And don't link, link the two, the three. So, you know, this week... Just in the news, there were some horrible things that happened in the Ukraine, right? And people died, and it was horrible. And we hear the world crying out for peace, right? I mean, you see it, and this is the Bay Area, right? So you see it on bumper stickers, on T-shirts of little kids, right? Go to Old Navy, and you'll buy, a, you know, Give Peace a Chance um, T-shirts for your toddlers. And um, during every demonstration on TV, Right, you usually see something like that. But, but the peace that we're, 
that they're talking about is not on that side of eternity, it's on this side of eternity, right? And that's not what Paul is talking about, right? He's talking about peace, peace with God and not necessarily with men. He's not talking that it's based on my feelings or my circumstances, whatever they happen to be. He's talking about a peace that's a biblical peace. So the question is, is, well, what's different? What's what's the difference of it? What's a biblical peace? Right? How are we supposed to find this as Christians, this biblical peace that we will actually can be a firm foundation for whatever goes on in our world? And I say this, if you are absolutely convinced that your right standing before God is based only on his grace and not on any goodness in yourself, if, if you can agree with that, if that is true of yourself, then you have biblical peace despite what you feel like. You have been adopted into the family of God like Titus, a Gentile, actually being adopted. That grace has brought you salvation, has given you the peace that comes from salvation. And lastly, is this grace should produce godliness, right? So this great and merciful grace and this promised for eternity, and we've been brought into this family like Titus, right? And it should produce some godliness, Right? And that's the message that Paul is telling Titus. Preach the word because this grace produces godliness in the life of the church. I often think about, <clears throat> there are many times that I hear or read of stories where people say they have encountered God. You've heard these things. right? And what did they experience? They, they, they said they saw God and they actually experienced an incredible peace come over them. Well, I just challenge you this morning. Let's look at what Scripture says when people encounter actually God. Right? One, it says no one should actually sort of see God. If they do, they die. But let's look at Isaiah 6 and see what happens. This is a familiar passage for most of us. Right? And what was his response? Right? This is verse 3 in Isaiah 6. Right? Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. And he says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah's response is to be exposed. He's terrified. Very different than this wonderful peace and tranquility and serenity. And then just flip back to the second book, Genesis in Exodus chapter 3. What happens when, when, when Moses sees God? Exodus chapter 3. The story of the burning bush. says this in verse 3, this is God speaking, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then Job, we won't go there, but Job faces the greatness of God in Job 42. It's the last chapter in the book of Job. And what does Job says? He says that he despises himself. Right? Everything that we've done, every sin we've committed is exposing us. Right? 
He despises himself and he repents in dust and ashes. I just want you to turn to one other place. We go to the New Testament. Luke chapter 8. Verse 22. I always find this amazing. That when Jesus and his disciples get together and, and he shows them the power of God, their response is not peace and serenity and tranquility and they write a book about it. That's not the case. This is what happens. One day, so Jesus is going to calm the storm. At the end, we know that. But what happens? What's their response? So sometimes we, we're just amazed by what happens. But I always find it fascinating to see what happens with the disciples. You know, they are just like us, right? If we saw the power of God, what would we do? Well, this is what it says. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, I just can't imagine, just to stop here, why Jesus would be falling asleep in this? But he does. And... Um, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So the nature was calm. You would think that these disciples would be just as calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, right? And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? I would say this, that when we actually see clearly the grace of God, we should be humbled, right? We should be undone. It, it should bring a deep humility, right? And a recognition of the depth of our sin, right? And this, this depth of our sin should actually produce a desire for godly living. That's actually what does it. It doesn't sort of, our godly living doesn't precede the grace of God. So in, in the book of Titus, over these next times, um, we will see a lot, of, um, a lot of commandments or categories. It's to old men and young men, young men and older women and younger women and to slaves and masters. We get that in, in, in chapter 2. And, um, but it isn't the doing or not doing of those behaviors, but the grace is the basis for our behavior. Right? Good behavior doesn't result in grace, but grace is needed to pursue godly living. As we go back to these questions that Paul Tripp asks, I mean, you just think about the grace. Where is the grace in this? What are the deep desires that fuel and shape the way you do ministry? I mean, is it grace-based, or is it, I'm just going to power through it, I'm thinking about numbers and things like that. Am I open to confrontation, critique, and encouragement of others? Am I warm and hospitable, a shepherd and champion to those who are suffering? Has that been given to me by the grace of God because I'm not normally warm, hospitable, and a shepherd or a champion to those who are suffering? Or would these qualities, what character qualities would your wife and children use to describe you? Is grace anywhere in that list? Gracious. And then, of course, is your heart broken and your conscience regularly grieved as you look at yourself in the mirror of the word? Is it? Are you soft, tender, malleable to God's word and what he has to say this morning? So lastly, just, you know, what do we do with this information? Here, here's some concluding thoughts that I have. Knowing his grace 
that it's great and merciful keeps me from thinking I have done something to deserve it when I haven't. And knowing that his grace is, uh, continues forever, from eternity past to eternity future, that God never lies, gives us hope when we feel discouraged. You know, Paul said in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what happened when I was saved that God had something in mind and he will actually, he began this good work in me and he's willing to, to bring it to completion. And lastly, in a, in a world where families are split, right, by geography, death, divorce, bitterness, think about all the things, right? If you are a follower of Christ this morning, you are part of a family of God. And if you are a Christian, you have peace with the one that matters the most. That's, that is actually your heavenly father and that forgiveness you've received can be extended to others, right? Think about what Ephesians 4.32, we will get to this sometime in 2018, I'm sure as church when Rod gets to Ephesians 4, but it says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because God and Christ forgave you. Right? Am I willing to acknowledge my own sinfulness before I actually stand up and point the finger at someone else? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, and uh, we are grateful for it. And God, we, we recognize that there is a certain amount that we would like to actually do on our own strength, but uh, you have told us in your word that it is grace-based, and we did nothing to deserve it. God, we thank you for your grace. It is merciful and great that we are adopted as part of the family of God. Right? We are not orphans. And God, that um, you are gracious, and we can't forget to acknowledge your graciousness that would propel us, that would, it would propel us to actually live for you, knowing that that was the source of strength. In your name I pray, amen.